0: Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. Uh, As always, I'm trying to push you guys to my other platforms. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can also watch it on Odyssey and you can listen to it in audio format on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and a few other smaller platforms. Go to my link tree. You can follow me on all those platforms and make sure you're keeping up to date with what I'm doing. Uh, But tonight, I got a good guest. We've got Dave DeCamp, who I'm sure many of you already know. He is the news editor for Antiwar.com, and he knows a lot about what's going on in Ukraine right now. How are you doing tonight, Dave?
1: I'm good, Reed, Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. So when Scott Horton was in Utah like a month ago, hanging out with me, uh, he took some phone calls where he was talking to you to find out what was going on and I was texting you at the same time on Twitter, trying to figure out what was going on. So you seem to be someone who is kind of in sync with what's happening there. So how do you keep up with the news? What types of sources do you use to know what's actually taken place and not what the media is lying to us about?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what I do now for a living full time is I, you know, follow the news for antiwar.com and I write, uh, Kind of short articles about it, uh, you know, just about every day um, to keep people, try to help keep people informed. But, you know, a big part of my job is kind of sifting through all the propaganda. Um, And, you know, most of what I use is like, is mainstream sources, you know, AP, Reuters, uh, places like that, you know, because the truth is in there. You just kind of got to find it. Um, And and New York Times, Washington Post, a lot of times in, in like a New York Times article, you know buried in in the in the story will be like a pretty serious uh kind of scoop that they kind of bury for some reason i guess uh there's certain things that they don't want to put out there too much um and you know when it comes to Ukraine right now it's really hard to know what's going on uh on the ground with the with the fighting um so we've kind of i've been more focusing on kind of the political side the us reaction to it um uh just because it's so dynamic, and they're, you know, of course, Ukraine has every uh, motive to kind of exaggerate things and put out false information because they want the U.S. and NATO to intervene. Um, and then Russia has their own motives. You know, they might want to downplay casualties. Um, so it's pretty tough, and we kind of <clears throat> just run the short. Uh, like I said, Reuters, I mean, there's a lot of, you'll find a lot of crap in Reuters, but they're, they also, they have a newswire, and they, they'll just put out, you know, an article that's a few sentences and it just says, you know, the mayor of this city said this many people died and, or that. So we kind of just post that stuff. You know, we link to tons of stuff. If you look at the front page, antiwar.com, it's just tons of links. And the top news section is stuff, usually I've written me and Jason Ditz. Um So, and what, usually what I write is the, the things that we think are the most important. Um, and I can kind of add the more important context that, that's that's missing from the mainstream articles um you know and sometimes i editorialize them more other times i really don't put my opinion into them at all and i try to make it digestible and like headline subhead in the first paragraph just cuz you know that's what people want want uh, you know especially these days it's you know shorter the better i think um but when i'm writing about certain issues like let's say like the iran deal for example the mainstream coverage of Iran and, and Israel in general, like that relationship, that dynamic, and Iran's nuclear program, is just such—it's just such nonsense. So, in the, you know, in those articles, you know, there, there might be a little more kind of not opinion, but just context, just filling people in that you know might not be a regular reader happens to come across the article, and, and like just certain facts, like the fact that Israel has a secret nuclear weapons program. And Iran doesn't <laughs> like <laughs> so few Americans know that. And when I kind of went down this started this journey that ended with me writing for antiwar.com, it was learning those things that really opened me up to so much when you start kind of questioning the narrative and and realizing uh, what how much is just nonsense that they put in and, and the context and how they just, you know, want you to forget about history when something hits the news And Russia and Ukraine is a perfect example of that
0: yeah so something pretty much all of us got wrong douglas mcgregor uh daniel mcadams scott horton you me not that i'm a reputable source on this type of stuff yet but we none of us thought that russia was actually going to really invade ukraine so do you think that those rumblings that we were hearing back in november and december that they were accurate or do you think they were wrong back then and then russia Decided kind of last minute, okay, we have to do this because they're shelling Donbass and they're not taking us seriously enough. Were those like actual intelligence, uh, you know, bits that we were hearing months ago, or was that propaganda bullshit from the uh, State Department and the CIA?
1: Um, Well, first, I would say McGregor was right (laughs) because I I remember a few days before it happened. I don't know
0: about the whole time in the lead up, but.
1: I remember like a week before it happened, he was on, I think it was Sky News, and he's like, yeah, Russia's invading. And I was like, oh. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, but during like, yeah, November, December, I think, you know, there was just like a deluge of, of just a, a bunch of what I think was, you know, bullshit stories from the from the U.S. about all this intelligence that they, that they had, saying that an invasion was I- imminent. But there was definitely some truth in there that Russia was kind of building up. And positioning its forces in a way that it could uh assault ukraine the way that it did um, but it wasn't really until later in january that it did become more more into like positioning to actually move into ukraine in november december they're kind of building up in bases that were still like 100 miles from the border or in crimea you know on the black sea um but i think that you know the u.s had the opportunity to stop it if they took the negotiations seriously. And um, you mentioned the Donbass. You know, one thing I always said, even when I was downplaying the threat of the invasion, was like a flare-up in the Donbass could always happen. Um, Mm -hmm. And Russia was saying, you know, they say that Ukraine was planning like this big offensive there. It's tough to know if that's true. But, you know, the shelling did really increase in the week before Russia invaded. Uh, Putin was saying a big part of the reason why he decided to go in was because Zelensky said that he was going to you know try to get nuclear weapons um uh and there actually was some reporting oh man i wish i could remember who wrote it i think it was uh, it was in the intercept and it was an author that I, I i don't think is very reputable these days but it was a report that said that the CIA like US intelligence was actually surprised when he when he finally did it and i was i was surprised too when he declared uh, you know, the independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk republics in the Donbass, you know, that's when I was like, okay, you know, this is, uh, even then I still thought it was kind of a last minute push for a ceasefire, uh, or to, a fulfillment of the Minsk Accords, which were the mm-hmm. agreements that they made in 2014 and 2015 to end the war there in the Donbass. It's been going on for eight years, but then he kind of went right in after that. So it was, it seemed like it was sudden, uh, to me and I think it was also even sudden how quick it happened just like that day. It, it, I think it did kind of cut even catch US the US by surprise, but um, yeah, there was it was a mix. I think there was definitely some truth, um, but and part another reason why you know I was naive, uh, I, I thought that Biden, uh, you know, was kind of giving winking to Russia or maybe making some more back backdoor deals that that we didn't know about. Like, you know, but but they didn't, obviously, because they mm-hmm. if they couldn't promise that Ukraine would never join NATO, then they weren't entertaining Russia's uh, concerns at all because they've said, Biden said publicly, they're in this run-up that they're not joining anytime soon. Zelensky said that he asked NATO, um, are we going to join? And they said, no, but for, publicly the door is going to remain open. I mean, that just tells mm-hmm. you so much and yeah. and now you know i think that they did want russia to invade so they could put all these sanctions on uh and kind of officially start this new cold war with russia we, we we've been all been calling it a new cold war for years now but now it's kind of official and and uh, i think another example of of them wanting this is is the fact that you know blinken hasn't gotten on the phone with uh lavrov the russian foreign minister since the invasion started i mean that's that's if if they really cared they would be exploring every possible avenue to end the fighting at least talking to them you know and that was another reason why i didn't think that the invasion would happen like that because they actually were in pretty intense negotiations leading up to it so but then blinken called off his last meeting with lavrov after putin recognized the donbass and then putin invaded and they haven't talked since so i think that says
0: a lot yeah um what i find kind of ironic is Because people like us are trying to explain why this situation has gotten to where it is. A lot of people will say, oh, you're justifying this or you're glad that this happened. That's the one that's really funny because I don't know about you, but the night that Putin started the invasion after he had just gone into Luhansk and Donetsk, when he started pushing further west, Obviously, I felt horrible for the people who were getting killed. But on top of that, I thought like, oh, God, here goes all the anti-war sentiment we've been building up. Like, you know, all this bullshit about COVID that they've been saying for the last two years, uh, the disaster that Afghanistan was like, this is all a perfect lead up. Like even Candace Owens was tweeting out like this propaganda that Russia is going to invade Ukraine is a complete lie. They're making this all up. And it was just all perfect. It would have been amazing To see nothing happen and everyone go like, oh my God, this was all just a lie. Why do we believe anything they say? So for him to go in, it was actually the complete opposite on multiple levels of what I would want. Because first of all, people are dying. But then on top of that, it kind of makes our narrative harder to defend. You know, like we have to actually be like, well, no, we wish he hadn't done this. But this is why he did it. Where if it hadn't happened at all, it would have been just a perfect, a perfect picture of, how much the state department and the media lies about foreign interventions. Uh, do you kind of, do you agree with that or?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It would have been a huge blow to the whole national security state. And that was another part of another reason why I thought that they weren't going to do it. Cause they really had the upper hand in the information war there and they were right. really mocking, you know, cause there was like reports that gave specific dates and they were re and the Russian officials were really mocking those reports. Um, but, yeah, and then like you said about the anti-war sen- sentiment, um, and it is really frustrating. You know, it's something I also have to kind of be, like, a little more patient about because, you know, people see me. I write for antiwar.com, and and I'm just talking about how the U.S. should not send Ukraine weapons and how uh, they should be trying to make a deal with Putin. And then they say, oh, I thought you are anti-war. You can't condemn Russia. It's like, you know with people that know me you know there's no reason there's no need to to do that it's like of course I think war is the worst thing that's why I do what I do um and it's you know horrific what's what's going on there but um when you know you're when you really follow this stuff and you know what the U.S. is and its allies are doing you know across the world it's like it just seems silly to you know have to you know say these things to kind of appease these people but you know, I could see from an outsider's perspective, they just started paying attention to Ukraine now. Uh but but yeah, and you know, there is some pretty good anti war sentiment, I think, on the right right now. Uh, even like you mentioned Candace Owens. I think she's been really good on, on isn't that incredible to watch? Happening. Like
0: I don't know what yeah. happened to her, but she's been better than a lot of libertarians. It's been kind of embarrassing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it is embarrassing. Um yeah, like you know they, there's definitely issues uh, with the kind of the populist right on, on China and stuff but i have been impressed with like Tucker's show i mean i watch it and mm-hmm. and they're not just saying no let's not get involved there's you know they ha- he has guys on there saying biden should be on the phone right now he- they should be promising that ukraine won't join nato like they're calling for diplomacy it's 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 really incredible to see so i think that's that's pretty good then on the other hand you have people protesting for no for for world war Three basically for the u.s and nato to enforce no fly zone i think there's been marches for that uh you know in some cities in the u.s and they're small from what i understand but that's still that's pretty alarming uh so i think we kind of have to explain you know explain to people your friends and family that don't pay attention to this stuff that a no fly zone means war with russia which could be a nuclear war in the end of the world so we can't under any circumstances do that and they kind of try to dress it up you have you know people like adam Kinzinger who have been kind of calling for this no fly zone from the start i mean they're they should be you know shamed and and ostracized from society for having that viewpoint but unfortunately it's like it's mo- it's way more prevalent than than it should be and even just the idea of being aggressive and hostile with russia it's it's very popular right now in the u.s there's all these polls that they think biden should be tougher more sanctions when the sanctions they're not doing anything to stop the war they're not hurting putin at all just today i saw that his approval rating is up to 83 percent from uh 69 percent back in january before the war um you know and you see the white house they put out these statements bragging about how they're destroying russia's economy like Imagine you're in Russia, and you say like you just have to put the shoe on the other foot. If Russia had the power to destroy our economy, and the Kremlin, and they did it, and the Kremlin was putting out statements bragging about it, what would you? Would you, you know, turn on on your leader, or would you rally around them? Um, Yeah, maybe not so much us, but you know, a lot of people, (laughs) I think, yeah, would.
0: Yeah. So with Crimea in. 2014 correct me if i get my timeline wrong here but mm-hmm. there was the coup and then they tried to kick the russians out of the base in sevastopol and then the russians basically just said fuck you and the ukrainians just left uh crimea there wasn't even really a fight no one was killed they just left and then after that crimea voted to join russia like 97% is the official number and then soon after that, Luhansk and Donetsk also voted to join Russia and Putin denied it. He said, no, nope, we're we don't want you. And then after that was the Minsk II agreement. Is that all correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah. OK, um, how accurate do you think those numbers are that they report for the people wanting to be part of Russia? How much uh, does Russia have its finger on the scale there, do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean it's tough to say, but I know that there's been a ton of polling before the Crimea referendum and, uh, and after that says, you know, overwhelmingly uh you know, before it that people wanted to join uh Russia. Um and that, you know, number I remember seeing like sixty-eight percent, low seventy low seventies. Um and then after the ousting of Yanukovych, um you know it would make sense for that number to go up, but like ninety six percent is really high um so <laughs> mm-hmm. but it, it's tough to say but um there's been polls since that you know people are happy there that you know that that they all seem pretty happy that they're part of russia and it really does go to show that there wasn't like a shot fired in in that you know annexation they that uh I think that 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 says a that says a lot
0: right. So I was reading on antiwar.com today that Blinken is saying that he doesn't think Russia is serious about having talks or negotiating. Uh, from your point of view, who is who is willing to talk and who isn't? Is the is no one willing to talk? Is Putin really like saying, hey, let's have a discussion and we can end this thing. Is there no really fair side here? What, what's going on?
1: Well, there's been pretty intense negotiations between Russia and Ukraine pretty much since the invasion started. Um, now, yesterday was kind of a big deal that they, uh, Ukrainian and Russian officials met in Turkey. And Ukraine put forward like a potential peace deal, a proposal for a potential peace deal. And they, they said that they wouldn't join NATO. You know, they would vow not to join NATO. You know, that's the first thing. That's the first bullet point in any report you read, and people try to tell you that this isn't about NATO, Mm -hmm. but that's the main thing. Uh, So (laughs) they say that they wouldn't join NATO or any other military alliance. In exchange, though, they want, this is where it's kind of tricky, they want security guarantees, and the Ukrainian officials describe them as, like article five guarantees, which article five is the clause of like NATO's treaty that outlines mutual defense and attack on one of them is attack on all of them. And they want guarantees from, you know, the U S and several other NATO countries as well as Israel and, and Russia, you know, says that they have to be a a guarantor as well. So I, I think it's really hard to believe that Russia would accept that, but, uh, and then there's there's other issues. Uh, Ukraine also said they would vow never to develop nuclear weapons. They said um, that they, with this with the military exercises, because one of Russia's demands was for them to demilitarize, but mm-hmm. that wasn't really outlined in this proposal. But they said that you know they would only be able to do military exercises with the approval of the security, the people giving them the security guarantees, which would Russia would be one of them so uh russia mentioned that and then there's the kind of the big ones is crimea and the donbass republics russia wants ukraine to give up to to recognize crimea as russian territory which they don't you know they say that they're going to get it back and they want them to recognize the independence of the donbass republics which is the pretty much the facto annexation by russia um because they would be protected by russia um and that wasn't in the proposal and they say Zelensky and Putin can kind of they'll talk about that. Actually, no. Ukraine said that with the issue of Crimea, I think this is interesting that they they want to resolve it in like fifty in a fifteen year timeline, which is pretty long. But I think for Zelensky, for him, you know, it would be a big political hit for him to give up Crimea and mm-hmm. the Donbass. So I think that's part of it. Um, so I saw any- that.
0: They were saying that that Russia was saying they're even okay with Ukraine joining the European Union as long as they don't join NATO. Is that true? Is that something they were actually discussing? So
1: that was a report in the Financial Times and then in the proposal that Ukraine gave to Russia, it did say that, that they would renounce NATO, their plans to join NATO, but they could still join the EU. And I haven't seen any Russian comments kind of against that plan Um, Mm -hmm. but from what i understand in Russian media and stuff they're saying that the you know nobody's really taking this ukrainian offer seriously i think because of the security guarantees that they want but the head of russia's you know delegation heading the negotiations he he had some pretty positive things to say about it today the kremlin spokesman for putin he he said that you know, there's no breakthroughs and nothing's really promising right now. It's still a long way to go. But, you know, either way, they're talking. And I think Russia is serious about the talks. But I also think that they're serious about, you know, destroying the Azov Battalion and kind of the people that have been fighting this war in the Donbass for the past eight years. Uh, You know, the denazification, which it wasn't mentioned in the deal, and apparently according to the financial times, isn't really part of the potential agreement that could happen. Uh, So I think they're going to take down, you know, themselves. Uh, And then, you know, it's, it's tough to know what that means. Exactly. If that means every, you know, everybody in Ukraine that's considered far right, which kind of has lost its meaning is Mm -hmm. does Russia consider them all Nazis or is it just kind of openly, Openly neo-Nazi ones. Um, so Right,
0: if they went into the Capitol on January 6th, then they're neo-Nazis, <laughs> yeah, that's the, yeah. the qualifier. So, yeah, speaking of the moderate Nazis in Ukraine, um, what do you think that they're exaggerated a little bit, or do you think um, that they are a legitimate presence in the National Guard and that they have held power in the government? And I saw even in some local government elections they won like 20 seats for mayor the svoboda party did and so it doesn't seem like they're just a joke it seems like they are actually a presence but what's your take on it
1: yeah i mean that's how i understand it uh, um is that um they are a real political force in the country uh and to the extent you know exactly how influential they are i i just don't know enough about ukrainian politics really to say but um you know, there's no doubt that they, you know, exist. And it's really funny. You know, we're seeing there's all this kind of rehabilitation for DAs off battalion. They're kind of the most infamous one because they're an openly Nazi militia that joined Ukraine's National Guard that the New York Times used to describe as neo-Nazi and now they describe as far right. And there's an article in CNN. I think there's something in the Times, uh, the British paper, uh, the, you know, kind of saying the same thing like oh yeah they used to be nazis you know it's very syria moderate moderate rebels but you know i do think putin exaggerates it uh, but again i i just don't really know enough about it to say because then i know a lot of people who you know a lot of times when i start kind of researching it more i'm always like surprised at how many nazis there really are in <laughs> ukraine and, and how influential yeah. they actually are because you know there are you mentioned Svoboda and you know the right sector, Azov and um, you know there there was an interview. I think it was PBS. They're interviewing the mayor of one of the towns in the east there, and he had a picture of Bandera behind him. <laughs> he, he, like so you know, but and you know it's the history of the country. You know it's that there's a lot of people have been killed in Ukraine by a lot of different by Nazis and communists and so. You know, they all have their own reasons for what they do there.
0: Yeah, if anyone watching this hasn't found out about Stepan Bandera, just go Google him, and there's plenty of information. The funny thing, and Mikola Lebed, all these people from Ukraine in the 30s and 40s, you can find out about them. You just don't know their names because you almost never hear about them. But if you go look them up, <laughs> there's plenty of information on them. Uh, yeah, responsible yeah. for the deaths of like tens of thousands of Jews in Ukraine fought with the SS against the Russians. Uh, I think um, Bendera was actually eventually arrested by the Gestapo because he fought with the Nazis against the Russians, but then he was a nationalist who didn't want to become part of Nazi Germany. So they ended up throwing him in jail. But as far as the anti-Semitic, like violent vile behavior of the Nazis that didn't (laughs) bother him at all. And then Mikola Lebed had Adam Fitzgerald on my show. He was telling me about him. He was uh, employed by the SS after they invaded Ukraine. And then after uh, Germany lost World War II, he was hired by the CIA. So uh, tons of interesting stuff. If you look into the neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine and how they've been funded by the CIA and used by them since the end of World War II, it's kind of mind boggling. Um, So... What is your best case scenario for how this could end going forward um from a realistic standpoint like what do you think both sides would be willing to accept at this point would Putin be willing to budge at all would Zelensky be willing to budge at all what what do you think this could look like
1: I I think Putin's going to finish what he's doing in the Donbass at least um you know I don't see them stopping that offensive at this point and it is kind of a, as these things go on you know there there's ukraine's gonna have to concede more like the minx under the Minsk agreements donbass would have remained part of ukraine they, they would have had a certain level of autonomy but you know if they right. just fulfilled those agreements they wouldn't have lost that territory so now i mean the donbass is is totally gone um and then, so when that's done, which I'm not sure how long that's going to take, I'm not a military analyst and and it's tough for me to figure out exactly what's going on on the ground, but Mariupol, which was like the major Azov holdout there appears to be uh, pretty much taken over by Russia. Not totally, but um, so, you know, that could still take some time, um, but, you know, I think Zelensky... I. I it's tough to say because who knows really who's kind of directing him, like what, what his real interests are here, because it seems like, you know, it's not Ukraine, (laughs) you know, what's good for Ukraine doesn't seem to be what's driving him. Um, It seems more his political motivations um, because I think, you know, there was a real chance to stop this, like I said, and it wasn't just, that's not just on Biden. That's also on, The Ukrainians and Zelensky, the leadership there. Um, So I I would say, best case scenario, Russia takes the Donbass. Ukraine agrees to not join NATO and be neutral militarily. And then they work out some kind of, kind of maybe bullshit deal about Crimea and Donbass that to kick the can down the road there and the security guarantees, you you know, the thing is with those security guarantees that they want, they're going to need some level of cooperation between the U S and Russia. So I think that, and I don't see that happening um, because there's no, I don't think there's any turning back from what Biden has done here with the sanctions. Um, You know, I think we've entered, we've really entered a new era here uh, where, you know, I just can't imagine, you know, military cooperation with russia uh i mean unless some donald trump or you know some other right wing populist comes in and reverses this russia policy even though like i can't see trump doing that because he's he rolled over for just about everything he said he would do but unless that it really just depends i think on politics here like if it's if that's enough of a political force here the um, but then you look at Congress and it's really just a few people. So I don't know. I, I like best case scenario, Putin takes Donbass, they work out a ceasefire. And things will probably still be pretty hairy for a while, though. I think I think there's mm-hmm. always it's gonna kind of be maybe another frozen conflict.
0: So I asked Scott Horton this. Um I want to hear your answer. Why did Russia suddenly become the bad guy to the Democrats. Because it wasn't always that way. I mean, it it used to be the opposite. Like, the Republicans were the Russia hawks. And Mm. I remember Obama even arguing with Romney about that in the 2012 debates. And then with Syria and with Ukraine, Russia is this horrible, awful boogeyman backing all this stuff that we have to put a stop to. And if you side with Assad or you side with Putin, you're just the devil. So why Russia? Like, what was that just what the state department wanted and so they somehow implemented it into the democratic party somehow or what what triggered that sudden phobia
1: yeah i mean it's it's tough to say cuz it started before russia intervened in syria because i think them stopping their regime change operation in syria was a big one that really made a lot of the democrats a lot of the people in the obama administration really mm-hmm. hate russia and the the coup in ukraine was before that and i know like clinton you know she 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 didn't like putin for years before that she was always kind of talking shit about him um so you know it's 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 really to me it's about empire it's about world domination you know these people want to control the world and kind of they've adopted the neocon doctrine that um led to all the post nine eleven wars and a big part of that is just you know global hegemony and you know even though russia is not a threat to the u.s homeland at all i guess they want more influence on their borders and and in other regions nearby than the u.s wants i mean uh that that's what it seems like to me and that the Democrats, you know, the mainstream Democrats are just, you know, neocons.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So do you have hope that the right is going to maintain any of this anti-war trajectory that they've begun to embrace? I mean, like you said, they still suck on China. I mean, I could just see, (laughs) you know, President DeSantis and China decides to get feisty with Taiwan and I I just see all of that anti-war sentiment evaporating. Do you think that's, do you think that I'm too pessimistic or do you share the same fear?
1: I mean, I I could see that, you know, the China thing is a big one. Um, But, you know, I hope that they can learn a lesson about Taiwan with Ukraine right now. um, Because, the, just the way things are in this country with inflation and gas prices, and the, we're just recovering from the lockdowns. Like, how can we possibly worry, care, or worry about what the hell's going on in Ukraine? Um, and you know, Taiwan—they'll say, "Oh, they—they they make uh, micro—they make chips there. They make semiconductors. We can't. That's why they're more important." But you know, most of the shit we buy is in China anyway, so uh, we. We trade with them. And I know that's kind of a big thing on the right, the populist right, is that they want to decouple from China. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you can't, you can't really address that issue without recognizing that there is like a military, a U.S. military buildup near China going on right now and ramping up. It started really under Obama, ramped up under Trump, and is increasing even more under Biden. The Pentagon just released their new national defense strategy and it identified China as the top threat I facing the that, U.S. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, that's pretty big because the def- national defense strategies come out every few years. The last one was in 2018, and it kind of outlined the shift from counterterrorism in the Middle East called what, you know, great power competition with Russia and China. And it put Russia and China on like an equal footing. And now that even with all this Ukraine stuff, I mean, this was a year in the making, this national defense strategy. But, um you know, there there's been stuff going on with Russia all year. It's not like it was just started with the invasion. But even with all this Russia stuff, there's they're saying China, you know. And you saw Biden; uh, he signed a military deal last year with Australia and the UK that that's aimed at China. Australia is going to get nuclear powered submarines out of the deal. He's increasing cooperation with the Quad, which is the U.S., Japan, India. Uh, in australia which a lot of like hawks see that as kind of a foundation for a nato style alliance so i just i hope that some people on the populist right can see you know what's what's happening here um and that if we do decouple with china then we're going to go to war with china or we're going to end up in a situation similar to how we are with russia that just won't will really be against you know our our interests uh, as americans as just regular people in america who don't care about controlling the entire world i mean uh you know you see this hypocrisy kind of with tucker where he's like in one segment why do we care about ukraine we're not talking about shipping lanes in the south china sea it's like yeah (laughs) you know he slips it in um but you know so hopefully a lesson is learned but at the same time, a big, you know, Steve Bannon, who's like the the, the guy on that on that uh, side, he's the wor- he's one of the biggest China hawks there is. He's co- openly called for regime change in Beijing. So uh, you know, and and as kind of a libertarian, I, I think that their arguments are pretty counter to what we believe, even though you know. Right now, I can definitely uh, sympathize a lot with the populist right, and out of every political force in the U.S., mm-hmm. they're the ones I tend to be agreeing with the most right now. Um, between lockdowns and the and the wars that are happening right now, um, so uh, where was I going with that? But oh, so you know, they really try to blame everything on China. Our mm-hmm. jobs sh- getting shipped overseas—that's um, why everybody has. You know that's why Americans don't have as as good jobs now, don't make as much money. But you know that that is a symptom of you know the the Federal Reserve and not having a currency that's backed by uh, gold or another commodity and inflation. That's that's not because they, they took our jobs. It's because you know there's plenty of jobs right now. Um, the issue is people aren't making enough money, and that's because their money isn't worth shit. But um,
0: yeah, so I got yeah. I got I got a good question along this line, so. Uh, it's gonna be a two-part. So, mm-hmm. first part is I've been hearing rumors that Russia is actually pegging the ruble to gold. Is that true, or is that just a rumor?
1: Not really. I, I know that they've bought a lot of gold. Uh, they've been buying a lot of gold for years now. I think in preparation for sanctions since the Crimea stuff. Um, but it's not like really backed by gold. But the ruble has kind of bounced back from the crash that it took. They've taken a lot of countermeasures. Um, but I'm not. I, I don't know for sure. But from what I understand, it's not it's not backed by gold right now.
0: All right. My other question was um <laughs> so Saudi Arabia, they're cozying up to China. They've been having talks with China about pricing oil in yens instead of dollars. Um, also there were some documents that were just released tying Saudi Arabia. Even more, obviously, with Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon on 9-11, mm-hmm. um, Joe Biden hasn't ended support for the genocide in Yemen, but he's talked badly about it. And so those those relations seem to be shaky, and I'm happy about that personally. I mean, I realize a lot of people are going to suffer um, economic consequences if that alliance falls apart, but... I mean, the price we're paying for that is pretty ridiculous. We're murdering hundreds of thousands of people. So um, do you think that the mainstream opinion of Saudi Arabia could finally go down the toilet in the United States? Do you think finally they're going to be like, all right, fuck these people. We don't want to be supporting this regime anymore, especially because the, the right seems to have been the force that has been more pro-Saudi Arabia, at least in the past. And if Saudi Arabia is getting friendlier with China, and if it hopefully becomes more mainstream about the connections between Saudi Arabia and the hijackers, I don't know, maybe people will finally be like, okay, fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're done with these people. Do you think there's any hope for that at this point? Or
1: I, I don't know, because um, Blinken was actually just in the Middle East. He met with you know, the Saudi, UAE foreign ministers. And they they were, they're mad at the Biden administration for this, th- not backing them as much as they would like in Yemen, even though they are right. still backing them. Um, but they're not just giving them everything that they want. Um, but there's reports that came out today that said that they're, they've been reassured and that they're happy now. And I think that's the talks with China maybe was kind of their way to get what they want out of the Biden administration. And there was a report in the wall street journal that they didn't take, they declined calls from, from Biden. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So I mean, so that was like a power move on their part. Like, Oh, you don't want to support us. Well, guess what? And so then we just caved like we always do.
1: Yeah. But interestingly, (laughs) the, the Saudis, they announced a ceasefire in Yemen today or yesterday during talks in Yemen on the war where not not talks in Yemen, talks in Saudi Arabia that they just had on the war. The Houthis weren't there, but uh, they said that they were announcing a ceasefire. The Houthis said that they rejected it because they they need to lift the blockade too. But the Houthis mm-hmm. also like announced a ceasefire, so there's like an overlapping day, so there might be a chance of that they're gonna try to work something out, but. Um, But if not, then I think that they're going to get a lot more support out of the Biden administration. And we're and, you know, you talk about the 9-11 stuff that just came out. I mean, nobody even noticed that. Like, so I saw so few people. Yeah. Yeah. I I missed it. I was like a week late on that. I didn't even like, you know. Yeah. So you don't you
0: don't have an email feed from a bunch of 9-11 truthers. So (laughs) I don't (laughs) know. Yeah. You're lucky. <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> but i saw uh i need to kind of dive more into that stuff too um and you know I, i've seen the interview adam fitzgerald and watched his stuff he seems like he really knows what he's talking about and he's not like a kook right so yeah i should really watch more of his videos but anyway like yeah because we were just so like overflown i mean we have a database where i put all the news articles i just copy drag links all day kind of and it's just been flooded hundreds and hundreds of articles uh that we sort through so yeah we were like kind of pissed at ourselves for missing that but we ran it as a top news story for a day or for a whole weekend um but yeah nobody noticed it. nobody cares i mean even if like we found out that's what's so pathetic kind of about this country is that we could learn that bush did 9-11 tomorrow and what would happen <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um but the Saudis, I think the time for them to be a real pariah has kind of passed, and 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 it's and it's a lot of it is Trump's fault. You know, when they killed Khashoggi, that was the moment. Um, that was the moment when everybody said, "Hey, what the hell are we doing? Like supporting these people, even though, you know, you could kill hundred thousands ch- of children in Yemen, nobody notices because the right. news doesn't cover it." But Khashoggi, there was something about it, probably because he wrote for the Washington Post, but and Trump was kind of. Had the opportunity to do it and he didn't do it, and you know they passed the bill to end the war in Yemen and he vetoed it. um So to me, it kind of seems like that moment passed. I mean, you saw Stephen Colbert had this joke where he's like, "Oh, well, we'll get our oil from the good guys in Saudi Arabia." It's like, so if is that a joke? Like, are you being serious? <laughs> I yeah, guess that out.
0: was so. I talked about this with uh, a guy I had on my show a few weeks ago. It was so weird watching that because to me that was an obvious joke at first, like. We'll get it from the good guys. Saudi Arabia, you know, obvious sarcasm. And then in the same sentence, he's like, but I'm willing to have a clean conscience and pay a little more at the pump. But it's like, wait, did you just like blatantly point out the hypocrisy in this and then just go along with it at the same time? Are we we really this stupid now that we can't even pick up on, you know, such a a coin flip like (laughs) that? I mean, it's just, I don't know, man. We're in trouble. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think... I've seen some right wingers kind of talking about Yemen now that you know ignored it for four years, and that's another thing about partisan politics. Like all these right wingers that are good on this right now could flip pretty quick if it if their side you know was kind of for it. Uh, it is kind of sad to see how quick that those changes could happen because, um, and even you know again that that populist right, yeah, you know, they're all pretty bad on Iran too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I bet if Biden went to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal that they would all call him a terrorist or something. <laughs> and yeah. you know, they all are pretty bad on Israel <laughs> for the most part.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah, they are not they're not really better than the left. It's just that the the wars that are um front and center right now, they're better on. It seems like it's that way. Like They don't care about Palestine. They don't care about Yemen. They don't care Mm -hmm. about Iran. They don't care about, I mean, (laughs) they're, they're, they're super hawkish on China. So if the main theater became China or we actually tried regime change in Iran, then you'd probably suddenly be like, okay, the left is actually a little bit better. It's just like, it just depends on the year and what president is pushing what war and you kind of just have to go with the flow and <laughs> it's just a as The time goes on. It seems.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's something I'm seeing. I mean, I've been working for an, I I've been writing for them. Not that long. I started in like 2019 and I've been doing it full time for like a year and a half. And just in that time, I see people like, Oh, get stoked on like, you know, right now it's the, the populist, right. Um, before when during Trump, when, when there was a real push to end the war in Yemen, it was more like, not just like leftists, like anti-imperialist leftists that are always good on this stuff. Like, I mean, kind of the more liberal left and like Ro Khanna. And I was like, kind of stoked on them. And now they're all hard. Ro Khanna has been so bad oh, on yeah. this Russia stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I, I know Eric Garris, who, you know, runs antiwar.com. He founded it in 95 with Justin Romano. Romano gets all the credit cause he was a genius writer. And, but Eric, you know, runs the site and he's been doing it so long. And it's just he's so used to and I'm getting used to it too. Like not really caring. Like if people are good on war or the issue at the time, I don't really care about the other stuff. Like I'm -hmm. pretty good at, you know, I'll talk to anybody that left this right winger. Um, you know, whatever. Uh, and that's kind of what you got to do, or you'll just go go crazy because you'll find reasons not to like anybody. But when it comes to politics, I mean I'm not involved in politics at all. Um, so i don't know i i voted for the first time in in years uh for the virginia governor election i voted for glenn youngkin even though i don't like him at all but mm-hmm. they were running that other guy who was like a clintonian democrat and after the the uh lockdowns i just wanted to go say fuck you the democrats and i just voted <laughs> republican even though like yeah. i i've always hated republicans i mean i was in high school during the bush years like it's like in my bones to hate republicans but just you know, I just wanted to say fuck you to the Democrats. But I'm not like politically active at all, mm-hmm. and 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 I can't find any movement. I've never been able to find a candidate or a movement that I got like excited about. you know I do like, I I pay it. Atten- I follow because Twitter is just is horrible. I do follow like the LP drama sometimes mm-hmm. in some ways, and I do I'm really sorry. Like- <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's so horrible, but it oh, makes it's it, terrible, it- dude. It makes me stay away, too. But I do really like Dave Smith. Like, when I see his speeches, I'm like, damn, he actually knows what the fuck he's talking about. Um,
0: Yeah, dude, I've been a libertarian for, I would say, like, seven years now. And um, I made a really pragmatic choice to support Tulsi in 2020. mm -hmm. And the funny thing about that campaign was you had, like, former Trump supporters, former Hillary supporters, former Bernie supporters, former Ron Paul support. He had everybody. And they somehow all got along because they're like, you know what? We support this woman and her general message of ending the regime change wars, bringing the troops home and focusing on our own problems. So after that campaign, I decided to like entertain the libertarian party again. And I remember I, heard Jacob Hornberger speaking and I was just like oh this is amazing like I agree with everything this guy is saying and I was like I'm going to be with a party again that agrees with everything I say this is going to be so easy because we all agree on everything unlike that Tulsi campaign where we all had different views on guns and abortion and climate change or whatever like this is going to be so easy and then man it's such a shit show like they people <laughs> agree on 99% of the stuff but then that 1% they can find they'll eviscerate each other over it. It's just, it's mind-boggling today. Yeah. Like.
1: yeah, I think Twitter, I mean, it's really, Twitter's good for a lot of reasons, but it's really bad for a lot of reasons because, you know, back in the day, you would go to a convention every few months, see each other, talk, and then that's it. But now, yeah. like, every stupid idea you have, you tweet it out, and somebody gets <laughs> mad about it. And it's it's just so bad for, like, the And then discourse. you have thought
0: leaders debating about, like, pl- private playground theory or whatever. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. Like, well, important stuff is going on and we get, yeah, we, I don't know. But that seems to be the problem. I mean, I, I admire people like you who don't get involved in politics. You just talk about the issues because it, I mean, it seems like the current goal of the Mises caucus and what Dave and Scott are trying to do is like inject what you're doing into politics, like bring, the pure message into politics. And I'm all on board with it. I'm supporting it. I am skeptical it'll work, though, because it seems like that's how you kill a movement is by creating a party or, you know, a political cause behind it. That seems like everything that's good, it becomes corrupted that way. So I'm interested to see how it turns out. I I don't know. I'm hopeful, but <laughs> who knows? Yeah. You know?
1: yeah, I always think about joining like you know through the Mises caucus and stuff but I never have I I should check out kind of local see what if there's a good people in Virginia uh involved in it um because it would be good because I am pretty like cynical so would even just being going and talking to people that you know care about what I have to say would would be nice I think and keep you know get me out (laughs) yeah but uh yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I wasn't a libertarian until like a few years ago. Uh, I mm-hmm. never, I didn't consider myself one night. I, was, I thought I was a leftist for a while. And it was really just because I, this was the issue I cared about. And I got into this through like listening to Abby Martin and people like that and kind of learning about the issue of Palestine and, and Israel. Yeah. And She's that's a great what one kinda, to listen to. Yeah, sent me down the rabbit hole. And then when mm-hmm. I started writing for antiwar.com you know i always liked ron paul like back in the day i read in the fed and i was like yeah that makes sense (laughs) but i always just thought i had just the wrong idea of what libertarians were um and then you know talking to scott and eric and i read some rothbard and i was like oh this is great this is like this is it and then you know i thought i would and get politically active within the space but then it just seems too like too toxic for me but i think uh a lot of that is just online and I probably should try to, you know, do some stuff.
0: Yeah. I've always felt positive coming away from an actual get together. Like it's so much better than Twitter. Twitter is just a hell hole. We should send Twitter to Ukraine to fight and let it get blown <laughs> up because it sucks. Yeah. But, um, yeah, man, where can people keep up with your work? And, uh, And what you're doing, because I I love reading your stuff on Twitter. I read your articles on antiwar.com. I really like your approach. You seem like really calm and cool headed and nonpartisan. So I like it. Where can everyone who's listening and watching keep up with it?
1: Yeah. Antiwar.com. You know, if you, you see the top news section, you'll see a bunch of articles by me there. And Jason Ditz, and uh, we've been running stuff from Kyle Anzalone and Will Porter at the Libertarian Institute, so they've been making my life a little easier. Um, it's less writing for me, and uh, I'm on Twitter at the Camp Dave, and that's that's it. That's uh, what I'm focusing on.
0: All right, man. Well, just for closing, what is the one thing that people should know? is wrong about what they're hearing about Ukraine. If there's just one thing you want to turn on its head and tell people, no, this is a complete lie. What What's the most important thing?
1: That uh, the U S cares about Ukrainians. <laughs> I think <laughs> that they uh, yeah, I think that's it. They don't care. They, they want, you know, they're using Ukrainians to fight Russia right now and they're flooding that country with weapons Uh, billions of dollars worth of weapons and just in the past month um you know to fight a to to fight a battle that they're not gonna win unless it's a long bloody insurgency for years and years and maybe even decades and decades it's the only way this could be a defeat for russia which is what blinken says he thinks will happen which he, he tells you enough um yeah they They don't care about Ukraine. They just want to bleed Russia, and they're liars, and they're evil.
0: All right, there you go. Everyone, go follow Dave. Go follow antiwar.com. I will have those links in the description so you don't have to search for it. Dave, let's do this again. I enjoyed talking with you.
1: Yeah, Reed. It was a good time. Thanks for having me.